welcome to Alan Carr's Easy Way podcast, where we challenge your assumptions and beliefs about addictions. Here we present a revolutionary approach that doesn't rely on willpower to quit. I'm Colleen Dwyer, a senior therapist at Alan Carr's Easy Way, your podcast host and presenter of our online video programs. And joining me is also John Dicey, global CEO of Alan Carr's Easy Way, co-author of the Alan Carr books and a senior therapist with over 25 years of experience in helping millions break free from addiction. John brings a wealth of knowledge and wisdom to share with you. We'll be addressing questions from listeners like you, covering a range of topics today, such as overcoming debt, technology addiction, and dealing with a loved one's gambling problem. If you have any questions or would like advice, please do drop us a line at pod at alancar.com. That's P-O-D at alancar.com. We really value each message and will personally respond to provide detailed guidance. Also joining us today is Chris Hay, a long-standing Alan Carr therapist specializing in smoking, alcohol, and drug addiction. Chris has firsthand experience with the power and effectiveness of the Alan Carr method, having used it to overcome his own struggles. And today we have a special feature as well from Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, who credits the Alan Carr method with helping her quit smoking and drinking. And we're very grateful that she shared her experience during her interview on the BBC. We're here to address any addiction related questions you may have even if your question doesn't make it to a future episode we will personally reply to every inquiry offering detailed advice and guidance so don't forget please do get in touch on pod at alancar.com and be sure to visit alancar.com to explore the wide range of addictions and issues that alancar's easy way has successfully addressed but for now you can sit back relax and open your mind to a fresh perspective on addiction welcome to alan Cars Easy Way Podcast. Addiction Central. Addiction Central. We want to air your success stories, answer your questions, and provide advice. This advice is free of charge. We'll answer every question we receive with no exceptions. Contact us now at pod at allencar.com. We're back with the Addiction Central podcast. Welcome, John. Um, we've got three questions today, which are very, well, I'm interested to hear your responses to them. So I'll get stuck straight in. So the first one is from Sarah. Yeah, she's in the UK and she says, hi, I'm really struggling with the cost of living. I just seem to get poorer and poorer and I'm having a hard time accepting and adapting to this. My mortgage repayments are higher than ever and I feel like I'm slowly sinking which I think a lot of people are feeling at the moment. So what's yeah. um, your response to Sarah? No, it's ever, so, it's ever so difficult, isn't it? Times are always hard, aren't they, for some people, and, and, and ever ever more so, I guess, um, at the moment. We got um, a, a debt programme um, to help people cope with this kind of thing, which seems like quite a, a, a cold answer to uh, Sarah's question. Money worry is always caused by income versus expenditure um so if you're sort of you know spending out more than you're taking in it causes a problem in most cases that's the issue so um rather than it being a sort of a fate complete you know i don't earn much money therefore i i'm going to find it really hard to make ends meet there's there's normally a problem in there and when we put the debt program together that's that's what we looked at um 
and the research we did and the sort of tests we did, you know, um, ver verified that uh, most people can get the balance with their income and expenditure it, 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 it synced up if, if they know how. And um, so what we do with the debt program is look into what, what's going on. Do we want what we want because we're told that's what we want? And do we buy what we buy because we're told that's what we want to buy, need to buy? And there's an element of that, whether it's marketing, advertising, or whatever it might be, just um, we're surrounded by everywhere. You know, it used to be bad enough when it was just sort of commercial TV, but now it's literally everywhere you go, whether it's on your phone or your laptop or driving around the streets or walking around bus stops, all advertising everywhere. And um, there's so many people out there saying advertising, oh, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work, but it, it really does. <laughs> it's, unfortunately for uh, um, companies, it's not something you you can um, you can turn on straight away, but there's there's a, a massive machinery out there that that um, spends its, its its entire existence getting people to buy what they don't need, <laughs> uh, um, and and invariably succeeding. So first off, is, is looking at what, what's going. Where, where is the money you're being uh, you're spending being spent? What's provoking it? Um, looking at um, how I guess we've been brainwashed into this purchasing existence, whether it's by the banks or the credit card companies or the, the advertisers or the products or whatever. People are manipulated into thinking they can't be happy unless they're spending money. You know, it's a kind of the classic case, isn't it? Of um, and I, I, I don't mean to be patronising here at all to say or anything like that. And I'm not saying this is relevant to her case, but it's just as an example, really. Um, <clears throat> this is going out for a, a slap-up lunch, which costs, I don't know, £40 a head or something, or £50 a head with your family, or, I don't know, making a, a picnic that costs, I don't know, five, ten pounds or dollars. You know, you can get just as much joy out of both of those. Um, and really looking into sort of which choices they make. So, as I said, I'm not saying that's relevant to <clears throat> Sarah at all, where there's some people out there who probably can't even afford a picnic. You know, it's, it, it, times are, are very difficult. But as well as looking at why we think we get pleasure from spending money for spending money's sake, and this is whether it's related to food purchases or clothes buying, um, you know, grocery shopping, anything really, there's, there's a tendency for people to sort of you know, what's the uh, saying? Spend, 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 really. So getting behind what triggers that spending and why we think it makes us feel good and then kind of putting the brakes on on it. So we're not suggesting you have to um, you have to never spend any money again or whatever else or always take the least, least expensive option, which actually sometimes can turn out to be the most expensive option. Uh, that's the other thing is really um, developing skills in decision-making on, on buying. Um, so once we've got the mindset right, what's driving me to spend more than I've got coming in? Um, and that's a, a debt spiral, isn't it? I remember, I remember being terribly in debt um, 30 odd years ago. Once you're in debt, it's just a downward journey. It's just a relentless feeling. You can't crawl your way out of it. And everything you do, you just get deeper and deeper in the mire. And that's where the program then switches from the mental process, getting the mental process right. So you're approaching, you know, tackling your debt, not with a feeling of sort of hopelessness and desperation or, or um, sadness or embarrassment, 
but you approach it with a kind of a whole new attitude with a spring in your step because you understand this isn't the the end of life as you know it in a gloomy way it's the end of life as you know it getting away from that kind of horrible sort of process of being in debt and spending and junk spending and whatever into this brilliant bright world of of happiness because there's no there's no burden like the burden of debt um you know i think we've spoken in the past we've all been in debt we've all been in, in terrible debt i mean terrible that does awful things to you i remember how low it dragged me down as i say it's good 30 or more years ago um but it does have you thinking the unthinkable the awful awful situation um and picking people up from even even that sort of um situation to thinking okay this is it i've hit rock bottom the only way is up and actually seeing that that as you get higher and higher it isn't the end of stuff that's uh, the end of st anything apart from being miserable and gloomy and down in the dumps about it and saddled and burdened. So it's just having that new approach that actually this is a new beginning. This is, this is, this is, this is, I'm, I'm coming back, you know, I, I, I'm getting back. Then the program shifts, as I say, about to say into some really clear instructions, um, and practical instructions on on what to do and how to do it uh, there are so many other organizations out there that, that do this you know citizens advice bureaus charities that help people kind of um recover from from their debt um but we include some 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 advice there as well um and it involves around stuff like i'm just referring to some notes here um measure first off measuring your your spending and your income it's something you know it sounds so obvious but most people don't do that i think and it is a case of just sitting down getting a pen out looking at the pay slips or whatever the income is um and, and what's what's going out including debts or whatever else and it's quite some quite precise advice in the program um creating a plan then to actually get the balance right between you know income and expenditure it is possible to do that. You can do that. You just never give up. There are all kinds of things you can do about that. Um, reducing your spending is is one thing. Um, and that doesn't mean reducing the level of pleasure or enjoyment you have in life. Um, but it does mean, you know, really being mindful of what you're spending, when you're spending or whatever and making those decisions. And, and it's not... It's not... Uh, Oh, look at it this way and do something less good is going to seem not so bad. It really is great. You can make a great day out virtually spending no money at all and come home and feel absolutely brilliant. Um, you're, you're not, I should stress this. You're not always doing that. It's not always about having no money. It's about getting the best value out of an occasion you possibly can on, on the least amount of, of money sometimes, you know, just to, to, to recover. Um, the plan also involves paying your debts or you know, handling your debts and all sorts of ways you can do that and and uh, increasing your income, which is something some people just don't think about that very much. Um, but there are all kinds of ways of of doing that. So that's um, that's in a nutshell what we do, kind of a snapshot of what we do. And I hope I haven't made it sound too too boring. I've got some comments here. I don't know, is it too boring for me to read these? Just a couple of people have used the program 
and sort of their feedback. I think they'll oh, probably yeah. Go for it, yeah. um, be able to say it better than I can. This is, um, I don't know where either of them are, <laughs> but uh, um, some <laughs> called Paul, some called Linda. Paul watched the online video program. Linda read the book. Um, and Paul says, uh, the method addresses the real reason behind most people um, failing, uh, falling into debt. Uh, I was bankrupt for 10 years. Uh, after 10 years of living in debt, which spiraled out of control. Uh, despite reading all the getting out of debt and how to get rich books out there, uh, I was still struggling to control my spending. Uh, this method is about dealing with your overspending, and this is the real focus. Uh, I almost didn't go ahead uh, with the program, but thank goodness I did. If you're in debt, there's a good chance it is down to your spending habits. Um, no matter how much money you uh, may be able to earn, that will always uh, cause an issue. If you're serious about getting out of debt and stopping the junk spending, use this method. It really does help. So Paul talks there, uh, touches there on, um, whether I was using the expression yet or not, but junk spending. It's like junk food. So um, junk food generally is nu nutritionally bankrupt. Junk spending is the same thing. You're spending money, but you're not really getting anything out out of it really um linda's comments a bit shorter uh just said this seemed like a gimmick to me at first i'm so glad i gave it a try it's really changed my life for the better it's so simple yet so powerful and had a huge impact on me so i don't kind of answered sarah's question um in terms of it's about sort of changing your attitude to being in debt your attitude and approach to getting out of debt and and it is, it is a, it's a massive change in life just seeing what you're spending what is what 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 it, what money you're spending is genuine uh, producing genuine happiness and enjoyment that's brilliant thank you very much john and i love it because it is well as with all the alan car programs it's all about improving your quality of life and enjoyment in your life um and some people think that cutting back on spending would mean cutting back on pleasure but absolutely that is not the case with this so uh it's about realizing where the true pleasure comes from yeah when i was in when i was in debt i always thought oh you, you know money doesn't make you happy you know that that was a lie that sort of rich people said um to make sure people without money didn't want it didn't want it as much but um but it it, it is true it's a cliche um it's a lot easier to be happy if you've got a lot of money and if you're not in debt that's true and that's what's really so important if you're struggling with debt you get help that's just you know don't don't let it drag you down so low and affect so many aspects of your life and i've definitely been there um many times um and it's debilitating it's horrible it's it, i don't think anyone really ever recovers from those feelings but you look back on them and just feel great you've escaped uh, rather than fear going back to it, if that makes sense. So so really, Sarah writing in was, I mean, a, a brave thing for her to do, looking for help as well. So um, uh, good luck, Sarah. And I think going about it in the right spirit, one of anticipation, one of um, positivity and looking forward, you know, dusting yourself off, picking yourself up, dusting yourself off and and away you go. That's the important message, I think. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, John. So the next one we've got is from uh, Patrick in Houston, Texas, USA. 
Um, Patrick says, am I addicted to my phone? Um, sometimes it feels like an extension of my arm, but does that mean I'm addicted to it or is it just I find it very useful? He says, I use it a lot for work and just day-to-day activities, but I must admit that I find myself scrolling in the evenings just watching trash on TikTok or whatever. And it does seem to be taking over, and yet I still find that I'm doing it. Uh, am I overthinking this? So, yeah, I, I guess he's saying, is that does that qualify as an addiction? Does that, um, you know, is he just uh, enjoying it a lot, or is is there a problem there? Yeah, I think it, it, invariably it does. And it's it's not a... It's not a straightforward addiction either. It's another one of those ones. You know, obviously, there's no, there's no chemical being introduced to the body. There's no sort of um, in, the, in the same way with, with cocaine or smoking, nicotine or whatever it might be. Um, but it certainly, you know, crosses the, that that gap between you know a behaviour issue and uh, addiction. Um, and when we Put the smartphone, dumb phone program together. That was sort of at the top of our mind. So who, who needs help with that? And um, for some people, it's desperate. You know, some people are glued to social media every minute of the day. It almost, you know, encompasses every aspect of their life, whether it's in regard to social media. Other people, like Patrick, I suspect, just feel they're spending a bit too much time, a bit too often. On their on their phones, and that that is that, that that that's that's an issue for people as well, and and one that um, one that people need um, need help with. Certainly, given the the sort of uh, the reviews and uh, of smartphone, dumb phone, um, and the way it was received. Um, and what we try to do is, is, is first off, I mean, I wrote the when I wrote the the first chapter of smartphone, dumb phone, I, I wanted it to be almost like a a love letter to technology, um, quite deliberately so, because it, why would you start a book about tech addiction, about smartphone addiction, you know, proclaiming how brilliant technology is? Well, just because it is. It's the most brilliant thing in the world. And we're doing now, you know, stuff, you know, and this little thin phone thing on my desk, you know, which would have been science fiction 20 years ago. It just it's just extraordinary so i think the reason i wrote that kind of love letter uh to technology um was because is uh smartphone use isn't a problem inappropriate smart smartphone use is a problem so that and that is cutting, deciding again between what uh which is appropriate and which isn't appropriate and, uh, which is problematic Bit like the debt thing, you know, what is appropriate spending, which is inappropriate spending. Inappropriate spending is something that genuinely gives you pleasure. It's something you genuinely need. Inappropriate spending is something you don't really need. It doesn't really give any pleasure and, and is a quick hit kind of thing. So, so for example, it is incredibly useful to have Uber or Lyft or whatever, uh, uh you know, t- taxi service on, on your phone. Uh, it's, Honestly, I was thinking about this the other day. It's probably, I don't know how long, long it's been around, but it's probably 15 years ago. If you thought you could just press a button on your phone and a minute later, a car would pick you up, know your name, you know, you wouldn't have to give them any money. It's all on the account. This is science fiction stuff, isn't it? Goodness knows what it's going to be like in another five or 10 years. And that's really, really useful. Um, being able to, be able to order groceries from your phone, that's really, really useful. 
um, so many uh, maps. You know, I was uh, in New York uh, a few years ago, and, and I know York, New York pretty well. Um, and once you understand the grid system, you, you, you're kind of all right anyway. You can get back to where you need to go. But um, I've gone down to uh, near Chinatown. Um, and when you go downtown, it all gets a bit sort of the roads get mixed up and, and whatever else. And uh, my, my phone died. And, uh, I realised it's the first time I've been in New York since uh, 1983 where I didn't have a, a phone, you know, that was going to show me the map. And, and, and automatically find my way. And I just thought, well, that's, that's weird. Um, and it had to be one of these kind of uh, uh, candy store type places with all sorts of knickknacks they were selling or whatever. It literally, as I needed a map, there one was, you know, a little tourist map that uh, cost about $2 or something. Got it out. And, it, and I thought, when was the last time I actually used a map? I was probably, you know, in scouts or something. Or, but, uh, then when you start thinking about it, I drove all over. I drove all over Europe using a a map, like a road atlas, and uh, you never use it anymore. So all of a sudden, got this map, found found where we're going. That's fine. Um, we take it all for granted. So you know, maps. You know, the maps. Find it, how long is it going to take you to get somewhere? This, these are all brilliant, brilliant advantages of of modern technology. Um, oh, one one problem can be if if you don't, if you're not equipped to use a map, for example, if you don't know the 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 the, the, uh, the analog way to get home from somewhere, that 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 will be a problem for some people, I think, particularly digital natives. Um, uh, but but this is all acceptable usage, all appropriate usage, stuff that makes our lives better. Work and so much with work, whether it's WhatsApp groups with work or uh, Microsoft Teams or whatever it might be, and hobbies. Okay, it's great to have your friends on a Facebook group. I've got all my my closest friends are we're in a group and chit chat every now and again or whatever else. But it's all all appropriate use. You don't need to be in a hundred groups though. You know, you don't you don't need to be in fifty groups. You don't even need to be in twenty groups because if you're in twenty groups, WhatsApp groups, you, the messages are never going to stop. You're never going to be able to keep up with them. And I think people kind of drift into that inappropriate use and that's what becomes a problem and it's not just messenger groups it, it's uh, um, uh, social media generally posting commenting twitter you know and people caring you know what what if someone has never met what does it matter that they liked something you typed on twitter and then retweeted it and whatever particularly you know if it, is it making the world a better place or not not really it's just a, people become obsessed with these things um, so once you uh, pull out the uh, the inappropriate use of tech, what you're left with is really, really good stuff. And it's actually um, learning, again, practical um, um, techniques to, to, to discern which is appropriate, which isn't, and how to focus on one rather the other. And again, not with a feeling of, oh, I can't use my phone or I can't do this anymore, but actually this is freedom. This is genuine freedom. And it was funny when I was um, writing a program, I just sort of questioned myself as well, my own use of technology. And just um, on Saturday night, I just sort of put a movie on with my daughter and whatever, and I just turned my phone off and 
left it in the uh, uh, in the hallway, and it was like a different experience. Now, I've seen millions of movies. I know loved movies or whatever, but it had been years, years and years since I'd watched a movie without some alert coming to through to my phone, distracting me for a minute, then going back to it. Oh, can we rewind it or whatever it might happen? So that's something I stick with now. You know, quite quite often do that. It's just just to be you know turn off the world and absorb yourself in in something. Um, so and it sounds that's where Patrick, uh, where Patrick is at times, junk viewing as well, scrolling through TikTok or or, or um, YouTube or whatever it might be. You're not you're not taking in uh, a, a curated selection of viewing. It's just whatever the algorithm is telling you to watch. You get fed up with it and swipe. Get fed up with it, swipe. Get that in itself creates incredible problems for people just in terms of patience. Um, uh, and what have you. Uh, so, so once you've, you know, divided uh, tech use into those two categories, that which is beneficial to you and a good few, and that which is the opposite, then you can focus on getting free and and uh, and developing all the sort of strategies and tools tools to do that. So, don't panic, back, Patrick. I think you're going to be fine, even if you were, a, you know, a heavy smartphone user or or gamer you know the smartphone dumb phone cover dumb phone covers gaming as well um even if you feel you know completely obsessed by it the you can get free and you just have to follow some simple instructions and um and you and you'll get there did i answer that question colleague yeah i think comprehensively i quite liked how you've um differentiated between junk uh use and legitimate use addiction isn't always about you have to stop absolutely in some of the cases it's about um uh, establishing what is beneficial and useful and brings happiness and, and joy to your life and what is just junk i love tech a bit like uh, you know um what you were saying at the start that uh, there's so much benefit from it i like using it but i don't like it using me so yeah i'm uh, i'm i don't have hordes of friends on facebook or lots of groups it's you know even with a school whatsapp groups it's it's just an onslaught there's so much going on i just have to you know mute them and stuff sometimes <laughs> no disrespect to those people but it's just too much it's just too much uh, information and uh, interruptions to your day it's probably about 60 70 percent getting your head right and the rest is practical advice well how do you detach yourself from these groups i've got some great advice in there about doing that and and actually you have a little look at it anyway who is it you want to stay in touch with? Just let them know you want to stay in touch with them, but the group's got too much for you. So if they need to get in touch with you, they've got your details. Um, anybody else, don't worry about it. They don't count. That's, that's awful, doesn't it? But they, they genuinely don't. Um, no, great stuff. Good luck, Patrick. Cool. And one more. We've got Kathy from um, England. Um, and Kathy said that she quit smoking with Anna Cars Easy Way five years ago, and she's uh, very happy to be a non-smoker. Um, and she said that she saw that the program is used to treat gambling addiction, and she's very worried about her brother, who spends a lot of money on slot machines. Um, he doesn't think it's a problem, um, but she's saying that she thinks it is. She can see that it is. Um, but she wants to know, like, how can she introduce him to the idea that there is he should be concerned about it and that he can and should address this issue how do you um how do you 
get in under their fight or flight response um how do you broach the issue yeah it's just, it, it, you know being approached about an addiction is like kryptonite to someone isn't it whether it's a smoker or a vapor as you say or somebody with alcohol issues or whatever else it is um no well we don't want to know <laughs> deny deny or whatever it can cause all sorts of all sorts of ruptions um and i do feel for um for her um when you see it a problem in in someone you care about you love it's, it's ever so difficult how how can you get through to them really it's very difficult uh, to do that um Depends how close you are to them. Certainly, cornering them, you know, cornering them, sort of painting paint them into a corner, isn't a good idea. You, you don't want to get to the point where you know they're so resistant. You're talking about you know what the problem you you think they have that they don't want to see you anymore. And I think that's the something people try to uh, balance out in these in these situations. Um, again, when we came to the, the gambling program was really interesting because um, it had been on on the the list of, of issues we needed to tackle for some time, um, and I had a very you know close family friend who had a had an issue with her partner um, who was in you know constantly in humongous amounts of debt and um, really at the time they had a young family and it was causing all sorts of issues and. There didn't seem to be any explanation for the debts that were piling up. I've gone back to the debt thing now, but it's, it it's relates to gambling, and it it just transpired, you know, pretty quickly. There were, you know, there was a gambling issue there, um, and uh, there there is nothing that would have this guy admit it or accept it. Nothing, nothing, no, nothing could. And it was that was clearly it. Unfortunately, I mean, you, she 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 uh, uh, she knew better than anyone. Saw the the the, the bills coming in and the, uh, the payments going out or whatever. Um, it's it's difficult. What I would say is something like gambling, particularly if somebody's got a a family. Even if they haven't got a family, you know, if you're in a relationship and and your partner's you know fritting away everything you're earning and more. Then you—that's the first thing to address. That's what I'd say um, to this to this lady. Um, I think it's a brother, isn't it? So, so I mean, presumably they're not living in the same house, and you know he's not going to get her into debt anyway. But, but as a you know, if you've got a partner who 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 has a gambling issue, you need to you need to take action straight away. You know, uh, um, you don't you don't want to you don't want to be dragged down. Uh, with them, I'm not saying sort of ditch them or anything like that. You just need to there's a way get some financial advice, keep your money separate. You need to take whatever steps you need to do to make sure that 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 if that person doesn't accept they've got a, a gambling issue, that will, however they might harm themselves, they don't harm harm you. That's that that's that's really important. I think a lot of people are reluctant to do that because it seems disloyal and dishonest. But if you're certain that's how the money is being spent. And that person isn't making noises about stopping it or not doing it uh, anymore. Then you you have to isolate yourself financially um, from from them. There's just no other way of doing it. Now the the first thing to do, even if the person does 
acknowledge they have a, a gambling issue. Very first thing you do then, isolate yourself from financially. I mean, that's just really, uh, it's fairest for them. It gives them complete independence. It takes the pressure off you. It takes the pressure and guilt off them. I mean, people who uh, gamble um, uh, get weighed down by debt because of it and weigh their families down because of it. They feel awful. It's, again, it's this huge burden. You know, we think we talked earlier, weren't we, about you know, debt, the burden of debt is awful. The burden of debt created by, you know, gambling away, you know, tens of thousands of pounds or dollars is is huge. And when you, you know, when your partner has to borrow money uh, to pay the heating bills or the, you know, little gifts at Christmas for the kids because because you you spend it with the bookmakers or whatever it might be. This is, you know, tragic cases. So, you know, rule one, protect yourself. Uh, and it's rather like the, uh, you know, on the airlines, they talk about the safety thing at the beginning. They say if the oxygen cuts out, these masks have come down, you know, make sure you put yours on first before you put your child's on because, you know, then you can't, if you, if you pass out, you can't help them. It's very much like that. It's the same as that by, by becoming independent, by, 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 having that sort of firewall between your between your finances and theirs um, you're helping them immensely um, and then I think with um, this lady's um, brother I'd, I'd say um, buy a copy of the book put a handwritten note in it and just say Look, I love you I'm really worried about you I know you don't think I have a problem if you do this is a really good book to read nothing to lose if you don't read it, no problem. But if you do read it, I'll be really happy and you know, gift that there. Um, I think that's about all all you can do. If you do something with love, then generally you, you won't be you won't alienate the person. Um, but what you can't do is every time you see him, are oh, you doing this? I, you know, finger pointing that kind of thing. Um, do you think she, Do you think Kathy would benefit from reading the book before she gave it to him with a little note? It might be, it might be useful. Yeah. I mean, I should actually say that the family friend, I was about to sort of suggest, or, you know, talk to other people in, in, in a similar position. And I think there are, there, there are a couple of organizations like that for families of gamblers. Um, I tried to get in touch with, I think it was Gamblers Anonymous, who I'm sure do brilliant stuff for this particularly fam, particular family friend, because I thought, well, if there's a meeting, I can I can approach him and and offer to take him along and and uh, um, uh, and honestly it was it was so difficult to get through to somebody at the time and I'm not slating gamblers and honest or not at all but it was just it, I just felt so hopeless once I spoke to somebody there that, I, that I just it was inconceivable to me um, that 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 there was a way to help him there. And it, there's not much help out there for gamblers. The, the help that is there is pretty much funded by the gambling industry, uh, kind of voluntary thing. And it's, it's um, manipulated by them. Um, and, you know, even the, uh, you know, the, the, they've created you know, adver advertisements for gambling apps or for gambling websites or whatever it might be. They've, actually turned uh, their adverts into warnings 
about gambling. You know, when the fun stops, stop. They say all the way through, you know, you know, take care when you gamble. Don't, don't, you know, never, the actual warnings are, um, uh, as prominent as the, as the, as the, the product they're trying to pitch, which, you know, goes back to the old days of the, the tobacco industry, industry. Do you remember? Yeah. When they first had to put the warnings on the packets. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, and, and that's what, what I was going to say as well. Is I'd maybe look for a, a, um, a community somewhere nearby that, that has people in a similar position. Somebody they love is gambling. They don't know what to do. Just knowing you're not on your own is is a really good thing. It's uh, it's a very very common uh, common problem. What do you think about like staging an intervention? That would be a big no no. Um, well, that's a whole new subject, and that's a. I mean, there are. Um, there's books written about interventions. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, in a lot of instances, it can be the last time you see the person. <laughs> you know, they, they really, you know, uh, you know, I think how would I, if, of all the addictions or issues I'd ever had, how would I feel if a room full of my friends and family got together and sort of sat around? <laughs> uh, sort of said, you think, Oh, I don't know how I'm gonna. I don't. I can't imagine how I'd have reacted then. But I don't think I'd have been um, comfortable. So that's a really, that's a tough one, Colleen. That's a great question. Um, I, 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 I think an individual intervention. So you know, this is we are handing the book over the hammer messages. A very light touch. You know, a very light touch. Um, if the person's got a problem. Guess what? They know they've got a problem, so you, she won't be telling him anything he doesn't know. So just a, a really light touch, one-on-one -on -one intervention, I think, is the way to go. Here's the book, read it if you want. And yeah, and as you say, reading the, reading the book herself might certainly give her a better in, uh, insight into gambling as an issue. I think it helps people to become so. They feel so isolated. Like they think this is, situation is unique and they don't know what to do or where to go. And the anger and the frustration. Maybe it's the same with a sister to a brother, but, but partner. This why can't they just bloody stop? You know this. Why? And it's the that's the thing with all addiction. Um, they can stop, but they need help, and they need the right kind of help. Um, and no matter how angry partner might get with someone it, that that is not going to help them get free it, 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 all we can do in most cases is, is you know build a, put a firewall between you and them financially make sure you're going to be okay really um and then help and support them as much as a, as you can cool wonderful cheers john until next time and if anyone does have any questions of course you know send send them through to us Absolutely, and that's a wrap, isn't it? I <laughs> see, I let you do it. I let you do it. This advice is free of charge. We'll answer every question we receive with no exceptions. Contact us now at pod at 
And now it's time for our special clip. Chrissy Hind is no stranger to the wild and rebellious spirit of rock and roll. As the driving force behind the pretenders, she has mesmerized audiences with her fierce attitude, raw talent and unapologetic authenticity. And Chrissy has struggled with her own demons. In this clip, Chrissy talks about writing for her new album and her experience with quitting smoking and alcohol, two addictions that seem deeply ingrained in the rock and roll lifestyle. But as we hear, it was Alan Carr's revolutionary approach that changed Chrissy Hines' preconceived notions and rewired her relationship with smoking and alcohol. So sit tight and get ready to be inspired by one of the most successful singer-songwriters of our time. Um, you can't calculate how long it takes to write a song because it might be in the, your head yeah. for a while. So. It was fast. And there's some wonderful songs. Um, now, we just want to talk about some of the words, actually. Um, let's just pick up with, I hate myself. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant song, but just tell us a little bit about the sort of thoughts behind it. I think, well, I can't speak for other people, but certainly yeah. there's been mornings when I wake up and think, oh, I hate myself. And, you know, often uh, for eating too much, for, you know, drinking too much, for still smoking, which I've stopped at the Alan Carr method. Uh, who stopped me from drinking and smoking. Andy has one on not eating too much, but that's right. not really my problem. But, um, uh, you know, it's just a I'm, common I'm sure, thing to think. Don't you is. ever look in the mirror and think, why did I say that? I hate myself. Yep. So, I mean, it's not... And then I go on stage and do it, and people are going, no, we don't hate you. And I'm like, no, don't take it too literally. Yeah, you know, it's, not, it's, it's not exactly... It, the, the words are really, um, you know, are kind of... Not, they're not upsetting, but, you know, and the, but the song is kind of more optimistic than that, actually, isn't it? It is. Well, it's saying, you know, on Judgment Day, when I make my way down to, you know, other places, I hope I'm not judged too badly. It's called I Hate Myself. And now it is my great pleasure to welcome Chris Hay to the show. Chris is a highly skilled and accomplished therapist specializing in smoking, alcohol and drug addiction. With his extensive experience, he has guided and empowered thousands of individuals on their path to recovery. Today, Chris will delve into the fascinating topic of addictive personalities and also share his insights on some of the very impactful elements of the Alan Carr methodology. And he will shed light on how you can break free from the grip of addiction, leading to a healthier and more fulfilling life. So without further ado, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Chris Hay as he joins us on the show. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Colleen. Thank you. I've got a note here from John Dicey. Um, and he says this about you, Chris. Chris Hay is not only a highly accomplished Alan Carr's Easyway therapist, whose work has spanned three decades, but... Also, he possesses a brilliant mind, which has been brought to bear with dedication, finesse and potency to help apply the method to a wide variety of addictions and issues. Chris has played a significant part in making Alan Carr's Easy Way the global phenomenon that it is today. So that's a pretty cool introduction. Well, that's very nice to hear. Yes, <laughs> that's lovely. So I guess, why don't we dive straight in? Sure. Well, I stopped smoking. My last cigarette was, I think, about 5.40 p.m. on the 16th of August, 1993. And I had practically taken a degree in, in Alan's book, um, and it was all making sense to me, you know. Uh, 
I was telling all my friends how great it was with a cigarette on the go in my hand. You know, I thought I'd better get along to a session. I think I was probably one of the one of the last people lucky enough to have seen Alan himself. And it just absolutely clicked. And there was just no desire to smoke from there on in. And you've never looked back since. And then and then what made you want to become a therapist to get more involved? Well, I I had already quit a number of other substances and this made so much sense to me and I started to think why shouldn't it also apply to all these other things so um, I just became very interested in this and this was the start of an ongoing conversation with fascinating conversation with Alan became very interested in this area applied to alcohol and other drugs and so on and uh, yes so uh, I got involved developing the method for alcohol and other drugs. And uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. What was your history then with alcohol and how did you quit that? I basically walked into a meeting, uh, a 12-step meeting. Uh, it was the 10th of November, 1990. I, all these dates have firmly etched on my mind. And I just knew that I had a, a very serious problem with booze. Uh, the feeling was that, you know, I was going to, I was going to go insane and, 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 and die if I kept drinking, you know. And I walked into this meeting. I had, as I see it, in retrospect, a very sort of Alan Carr insight in there, which was, you know, oh, boy, Chris, like you thought that you, that you drank and drugged because you have problems. No, it's the other way around. You've got problems because you drink and drug. And that did it. I was very, very lucky. I, I, I never drank or drugged again but I became very dependent on on the fellowships um and the insight for me when I when I stopped smoking with Alan is you know why shouldn't all this stuff apply to everything else can I just not be a drinker anymore uh, do I need to define myself in those terms any longer or am I just someone who just doesn't drink or drug you know much like a vegetarian doesn't eat meat you know a vegetarian doesn't need to attend meetings for the rest of their life to, to remain one. They just get on with the business of not eating meat. So that was the kind of insight that I had, if you like. Yeah. I don't have much of um, an insight into AA and the 12-step fellowship and stuff. But what, what's the score with that? You're meant to go every week, are you? You're encouraged to go an awful lot. Some would say every day, you know, or five times a week. Um, and... I th for me, the crux of it is this idea that you can be born an alcoholic or born already an addict, just sort of waiting to happen, as it were, and that you need to attend meetings to sort of, as it were, almost cheat your own nature. It's your nature to drink or drug. And, you know, by attending these meetings, uh, you can, as it were, cheat your nature. Now, what I saw with nicotine was that you know it was the drug that was addictive not my personality of course some people take much more of the drug than others um and uh but yeah yes no i saw that you know i didn't need ongoing i didn't need ongoing smoking sessions i saw that you know, Alan essentially explained to me that nicotine was a con trick and that once I'd seen through that con trick, I couldn't be susceptible to it again. And it just occurred to me that 
Well, I suppose first that that was not, nothing to do with my nature, that, that anyone can fall for that, and anyone can see through it. So it wasn't really anything to do with having an addicted personality. And like the idea that I was born a smoker before I ever smoked would seem absurd. Um, so I just basically started to think, why shouldn't these same principles apply to any and all other drugs? So at the time, Alan was only doing the smoking seminars and, and the weight seminars. And then um, and then you helped to develop the application of the method to alcohol and then other drugs as well, did you? I did, yes. Initially the alcohol and I, I helped Alan with the alcohol books and indeed, as you say, developing them, the, the method for sessions. Um, yes, and absolutely loved it. It was a, a very, very happy period of my life interacting with Alan uh, with that and, uh, you know, trying trying out different approaches and and you know coming up with a with a a method that enables people just to leave alcohol behind or or, or to leave drugs behind and and move on with their lives and um, is it was it just a case really of taking the existing smoking kind of content and basically just replacing the word smoking with alcohol no <laughs> no no it wasn't um, as I see it, one of the central sort of Alan Carr analogies that almost sums up the whole illusion about drugs um, in general is this cream analogy, the idea of an ointment that appears to relieve the very rash that it creates. And it seems to me that that, you know, that works very well for smoking if you see the rash as the craving, desire for a cigarette and or the withdrawal. I always felt with with other drugs that, that that is true and there's this other dimension, which is that the drug seems to be helping you, if you like, almost in a psychological area where it's actually causing the problem. So whether that is the heroin blocking out the misery that it creates or, you know, the exhausted waiter who maybe he sees that the stimulant effect of the cocaine is getting him through a demanding shift. But actually, in the long run, it'll be, you know, regular doses of a toxic substance taken over the years that is utterly exhausting him, that is turning an already demanding job into, into an utterly exhausting one. So that... That was kind of the insight for me that in every way, by the time someone's taken enough of a drug to end up wanting to quit it, the drug is always, it's, it's only ever giving in an area in which it's already taken away. Whether we can see that or not is another ma matter. When we can see that, it becomes just a lot easier to get free of that drug. And what is, can you explain the ointment analogy what is the ointment analogy so the ointment analogy is you is you've got a spot i say try this cream try this ointment it seems to work it seems to get rid of the spot and uh, the following day you've got a rash beginning to spread across your face i say keep the rest of my tube it should work it seems to do so by the third day the rash is spreading spreading to your body 
Now, I can see a really lucrative way of uh, making money out of you here. So I start charging you for my cream. You willingly pay up. And it does the trick. You discover that the cream is also a poison. Well, that doesn't remove the desire to take the cream. It creates an intense desire to be rid of the problem, but it doesn't actually solve the problem because you still know the cream's the only thing that will relieve your rash until you discover that the cream is actually creating the rash. It never solved the problem, never even took away the original spot, just drove it beneath the surface. So every, every dose of the cream is doing the exact opposite to what it appears to be giving you. That's a cool um, analogy. Good what analogy. Is, yeah, what is the, the initial spot representing? A problem you have in your life and you go to a drug to attempt to solve that problem. And as we all know, that's a sort of, you know, that's a, a, a journey where the, the cure becomes worse than the disease, if you like. What did you think um, alcohol was doing for you or the other drugs were doing for you when you first started taking them? Well, I, I, I was a... No one... Does anyone have a very easy childhood? I'm not sure. I, I was a somewhat troubled individual. And I think initially they give some sort of illusory escape. Um, and then in quite a short period of time, I think, you know, you end up drinking and drugging on the very problems that drink or drugs are either creating or at least exacerbating. Um, the trouble is we can't always see that. That's why we need, <laughs> that's why people need to, to talk to people like me and you. <laughs> what are the people like that usually come along to your seminars? I, you know, they are as varied as the human race, I, w I would say. Um, what one thing that I I don't necessarily agree with about the twelve step approach is that there's a sort of innately addictive personality. I think that that some people are more addictive than others, but I don't think there's any such thing as a completely non-addictive personality. So um, I would, yeah, you know, anyone who takes heroin can get hooked on it, right? It's it, heroin is an addictive substance. So I don't think there's really a type. The only thing I would say is that contrary to the popular belief, so often uh, addicts are very intelligent, extremely capable people with a lot of drive. Uh, there's a line in one of the train spotting movies where Renton, the protagonist, says, uh, you know, people think this is a DOS. Like people, you know, people think this is easy being an addict. It's not. It's like a full time business and uh, of course one of the other analogies we use is that your addiction isn't really you in in contrast to what 12-step fellowships say that it isn't an integral part of you it's it's like a monster that gets hold of you but is actually a, a, a freeloader uh, a, a, on the real you is actually a, a, an imposter but it uses your brain and it uses your drive so if you've got a lot of drive and a lot of you know brain power you can either let that work against you and you can deploy the same kind of, you know, native cunning and so on, so forth in seeing through the scam, the trick and getting free of it. So I guess if you're going to if you're going to be an addict, being bright <laughs> might not exactly serve you well at first, but you can use those resources for good or ill and, you know, maybe in the long term. You can use your smarts to get free of addiction just as you kind of 
you know, it might have been the thing that accelerated you down the down the trap faster than the next guy in the first place. Makes sense? Yeah. And do you see people like from all over the world? Because you do one to one like online seminars, don't you? With um, people taking certain drugs. Yes. One to one people from all over the world online, in person, group sessions, one to ones. What, what are the kind of drugs that people um, are seeking help with at the moment? Cocaine, a lot of cocaine. There seems to be a bit of a, not quite a pandemic, but certainly an epidemic of cocaine use at the moment. Cannabis, heroin. Um, quite a lot of people I'm seeing where they will start using a drug for kind of bona fide medical reasons. And then it becomes, you know, so-called recreational or it becomes, you know, the drug has outlived its medical usefulness and is you know, still hanging around. Um, so, you know, we help people with that. And fentanyl and God knows what. Yes. Um, yes. So, no, we see I see quite a lot of people for that sort of thing. Absolutely. Codeine. It's outrageous that you can buy codeine over a counter in England, you know, whereas there are some countries where if you even prescribe it as a doctor, you can be struck off. It seems incredible that this opiate is available over the counter in boots, but there you go. Does come with a warning, right? <laughs> Three days use and you might become addicted. Comes with a warning, but that's never stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> it encouraged you, if nothing else. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, all part of the appeal, yes. So if if you don't mind me being personal, um, and you don't have to answer this, but what drugs then did you take? Did you take all of those kinds of drugs? To be honest, the one that was the worst for me was the legal one, alcohol. I mean, that absolutely brought me to my knees. But um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel a bit like uh, Marlon Brando and the wild one. You know, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what do you got? <laughs> I was like, what do you got? <laughs> um, uh, I pretty much, well, I did take anything that was ever offered to me. Um, I was, you know, that kind of guy, I guess. Are people quite incredulous when they come along to you to begin with that um, the idea that they can be completely free of this drug after just doing one seminar? Sometimes, but so many of them have friends who have already experienced that. So the vast majority of people we see are you know, coming on the recommendation of someone who's experienced just that. They're sometimes a little incredulous. I think the idea that you can do that in just a few hours, it's, it kind of goes against our culture, um, the way we think about drugs in this society. But I would say, you know, what is the main impediment to quitting a drug in a few hours? The belief that it can't be done in a few hours. Why shouldn't it be? You know, if you become a vegetarian, you do it in a moment. You know, there's, there's a, a phrase I quite like, recovery is a, an event, not a process. So, you know, it's if you're going to stub out a cigarette, how long does it take to do that? A few seconds. Now, people might think, well, you know, cigarettes are, you know, cigarettes are different from meat, vegetarianism, you know. But ultimately, whether it's a drug or not, if you have a changed mindset about that thing, why shouldn't it just take a couple of hours? How long does it take to see through any other scam? It's not really a function of time. You know, it's, it's a function of some people, of course, like smoke, you know, 
the world of nicotine is famous for some people haven't had a smoke smoked a cigarette in 30 years and are still saying well i could kill for one ever after every meal and other people just have a, an epiphany and you know it's over and done with for good like it was for yeah Alan. i suppose that um like the solutions for those drugs um is usually um like rehab uh, for a prolonged period of time or this AA 12 step thing where you say, you know, you have to keep going back regularly, maybe for well, for the rest of your life, right? And, mm. and that's why I suppose this, um, well, mm. it just takes one seminar one day and then you're completely free. That really does fly in the face of the established um, understanding of uh, addiction. So it's, it's heartening to know that that's not a big resistance that you get from clients that come along. What would you say is a big resistance that, or one of the big resistances? Yeah, well, I, I would say essentially the, the cream and the rash gets to the nub of it. it. To a cream user, because the rash is there when they're not using the ointment, it so looks like the ointment helps, you know, just because of the timing of it. So it's, you know, if... if uh, and I always kind of see, like, in that analogy, the rash would be both the withdrawal and the craving and the mess your life might be in as a result of the drugs. You know, so you get your bit of sort of, you know, like your little bit of tawdry escapism when you take the drugs, but it's giving you escape from the very reality that it's poisoning. Um, so that you know, literally the timing of it, the fact that it works that way around, what Alan used to call the sort of back to frontness of addiction, the, the fact that, you know, I'm gagging for a cigarette when I'm not smoking one and then... You see, so it looks so like it looks so like a pleasure, but ultimately that's illusory. You wouldn't put on tight shoes just to make it nice when you take them off. And I think with I think with mind altering drugs, this extra dimension that the drug the drug does have a mind altering effect. What people find hard to see is that that effect looks precious precisely because the drug has done the opposite to them in the long run. So the exhausted waiter, he, he sees the coke as getting him through the long night. You know, he doesn't see it as causing his utter exhaustion in the first place. He sees his job as doing that. <laughs> well, he's got it the wrong way around. Although um, his job might be doing that a little bit, right? Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so his job might be almost like a spot that the cream turns into a rash. He's, he's much better off having a smoothie and getting an eight hours sleep and, you know, <laughs> resting up. <laughs> Quite often, like people equate drinking and uh, drugging and stuff with fun times and celebration and enjoyment. And I wonder whether they're fearful yeah. that when they yeah. quit, that yeah. somehow life's going to be a bit duller and a bit less, uh, less of a sense of abandonment when they go out with their mates. And that They are fearful of that. And, you know, to me, a lot of that is a bit like, like, let's say a footballer has played a really good game when she's wearing some socks. She thinks it's the socks. Now, it's not the socks. She's a good footballer. It's a bit like that, that we tend to take these drugs at very enjoyable occasions. So it's, you know, we often think of the drugs as like the cherry on the cake there. But I would say it's more that if you believe you can't have a good time without a drink, you can't, but not because the drink is this, you know, the socks aren't actually magic. It's like, so if she, 
we could say this is quite a nice analogy for what the Alan Carr method does. It's not just throwing away the socks. It's throwing away your magical thinking about the socks along with the socks. Then, you know, I've, I've had a very social, I've been, haven't drunk for 32 years now. I haven't drunk alcohol for 32 years now. I've had a great social life. It's whether you enjoy yourself without the drug is like 0% anything to do with the actual drug and 100% to do with with your thinking about it. I, it reminds me of a time, a story told a little while back about how you went out with your um, friends from AA, was it? And then you went to a, a bar or you went to a... Yeah, no, it was it was actually on the occasion. I think I was three years sober. No, it was must be two years sober. And um, we were all celebrating that. And we were in this bar, um, well, pizzeria, actually. And uh, I think we were probably all behaving very badly. I mean, probably not a single person at that table had had a drink. And they thought that we were out of it on something else. And they, they, they tried to put a few extra sort of items on the bill. But of course, we were compass mentis, So we spotted it. And then uh, they apologized vigorously. And we, we all got a free dessert out of it. So <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> It's kind of a nice example of how deep the sort of brainwashing in our culture goes. That, you know, people who are being silly and having a laugh and have a good time, they like, they can't be doing that just straight, you know, without a drug kicking around the system yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And yet we, we put we put up with all sorts from kids. You see kids walking down the street with, you know, their their bags on their head or, you know, doing a little dance. And and that's permissible, but not as an adult, <laughs> unless you've got some drug in you. Well, I was just going to say it's fascinating how, you know, there have been so many experiments in which if you give someone a drink, for example, that's mocked up to look and smell and taste like alcohol they will horse around like that and be a bit silly and, and you know so that it's you know like like that more than anything points to the fact that ultimately the socks aren't magic you know that that they're having you know that the alcohol like they you think of it as a sort of ticket to enjoyment but actually you can have you know get rid of all the myths and you can have a damn good time without yeah without a better time even and you remember it, which is even uh, even better, yeah. So, um, um, and uh, so in your seminars and stuff, Chris, do you have? Um, is there any particular moment where people kind of you see that their their thinking is shifting? Or I wonder about the um, bit you do in the alcohol seminar where you put on the goggles and stuff. I wonder if that's weirdly an eye opener for people. Well, if, yes, absolutely, it can be, and the cream analogy. You know, the cream analogy was what did it for me with the smoking. Um, and sometimes this pitcher plant analogy that we, we use of, you know, people are in a sort of uh, a pit a bit like a carnivorous plant. And, you know, at some point, you know, it's not so much that the flies eating the nectar in the plant. At some point, the plant's eating the fly and it's kind of indeterminate when that might be. You know, that's a big one for people. And it's it's kind of fascinating. Absolutely. Sometimes you see the light go on in someone's eyes. And other times, you know, people just sit there, they take it in and you get a lovely postcard or something from them saying, you know, I haven't had a drink for a year or five years or whatever it might be. So, yes, it's yeah, sometimes I think 
our thinking changes and then we stop. And sometimes we get enough of a shift in our thinking to stop and then our thinking really changes. But those moments where, where people see the light are worth their weight in gold. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think you'd be doing if you hadn't become an Alan Carr therapist? Oh, golly. Well, I was sort of, I was sort of on the road to have an academic career, really. Um, you know, working in uh, English literature, but I'm, this is a much more interesting subject. Much as I love literature, this is a much more interesting subject. <laughs> I was doing a bit of acting as well. But... And what if you hadn't ever come across the Alan Carr book on smoking? What do you think you'd be doing if you hadn't discovered that? I'd probably be pushing up daisies, I should think. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was such a chain smoker. You know, I was a, you know, one of the appeals for me of roll-ups is you literally didn't know how many you smoked. But, you know, I, I, I was getting through 40, 50, probably some days more, you know, um, as a guess um, in a day, you know. Um, and I suppose, and I'd still be religiously attending 12-step meetings, you know, I guess. If I was, if I still managed to be above ground, <laughs> which is a big if. And, and those meetings, you know, in their way, they were great. I, they, they were lovely people. People say, listen to the message, not the messenger. I, I think in many ways, I kind of got clean and sober more despite the message, you know, and because of the lovely messengers, you know, it was a bit of human warmth and contact. But, but this is a message made a lot more sense to me yeah for me what you, we were saying before how this could be um described as alan carr's easy way to quit aa i think it hinges on you know whether or not you really buy the idea that there's such a thing as an innately addictive personality as opposed to a non-addictive one i would buy the idea that there are are definitely more addictive personalities and less addictive personalities. But I don't buy the idea, I don't really buy the idea that there's any such thing as a non-addictive personality. You know? So I think if you, if you think this problem is in you as an inescapable thing, it makes sense to go to an awful lot of meetings. If you don't, it doesn't. Once I'd uh, read Alan's book and attended the seminar and stuff, what I understood about the addictive personality thing is that um, there are maybe like personality types like where the individual is quite a determined and intelligent and you know a forthright stubborn kind of character and because of those traits they might fall harder and faster into the trap but um, so so those are good traits but it's just that they're kind of they're tripping you up when it comes to addiction perhaps so in a sense an addictive personality actually is a compliment rather than a disparaging kind of, oh, you're a weak individual. I, I think there's a lot in tru of truth in what Alan used to say, and that, you know, smart, bright, dynamic people tend to slide faster down the pitcher plant, because if you're smart, you'll have a smart monster. It, it, looks, it looks more like a matter of how you deploy those resources, you know, that, that, that you, can, you can use it to get further and further into the pitcher plant, or you can use those resources to get free, you know, so... I. I definitely think that there's such a thing as a more addictive personality, but but in contrast to a less addictive personality, not in contrast to a non-addictive personality. The latter seems to me just nonsense.
I, you know, I'd love to meet a non-addictive personality. I've never met one today. <laughs> and what about um, like if people come off alcohol and stuff? Because I've heard that if people come off, it's said in some places that if people come off alcohol quickly, that they might it might actually really damage them or kill them even. I did nearly three years in AA and as a loyal member and I did five or six meetings a week so heaven knows how many ex-drinkers I met in that time but you know 20 or 30 people in your average meeting and literally the people who mentioned a withdrawal syndrome that involved any discomfort I could count on the fingers of one hand so I'm not saying it never exists, but it's so rare. And the thing is, if you go to your doctor, they can give you something that completely negates it. So it's just a complete red herring as far as quitting is concerned in my book. So it's not a reason to taper off. Well, tapering off doesn't work, does it? For the simple reason that alcohol reduces self-control, including self-control about alcohol, right? I mean, we've all tried tapering off. Um, if we could all do that, we wouldn't be solving a, trying to solve the problem in the first place. Now, I just remember a joke in The New Yorker where there's a bloke in a restaurant leaning across, holding a lady's hand, and he's saying, Susan, I think it might just be the wine talking, but I think I want to order more wine. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That, that's why it's impossible to control these things, you know. The drug reduces self-control, including self-control about the drug. How can you win with a substance like that? But you don't need to fight it. You can get out of the ring, you know. And um, do you ever crave alcohol or any of the other drugs? Do you ever miss them? Never. <laughs> Never. Not even a little bit? <laughs> Never. No, not even a little bit, really. I mean, it's, it's like saying, can you go back to believing in the cream again? It, for me, it would be like saying... You know, if I was a medieval sailor, I believe the world was flat. Someone takes me out in a spaceship so that I can see that it's round. It's like, could I go back to believing in a flat Earth? Not in a million years. I, th I think when you really get how drugs work, you don't crave them. That's why I'd say there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Because by definition, you know... There's, there can be no such thing as a hopeless case. It's like, is there such a thing as a medieval sailor who can't see the world as round? No, because it is round. If what we're saying is something that is already true about drugs, it's always out there to be seen. So there can be no such thing as someone who can't get it. Yeah. Because that can be a worry for a lot of people that they think, oh, my God, well, I'll, I'll sign up for this seminar or I'll read this book and I'll be the, the exception to the rule. I'll be the one person who can't get it. But you don't believe that there's um, any such. I've heard people feel they were a hopeless case. But th there can be no such thing as, as far as I see it, because if what we're saying is true about nicotine and alcohol and these other drugs, then if something is true, it's always out there to be seen. <laughs> If the, if the world is really flat, I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> if the world is really round, <laughs> but looks flat, you know, it, it, it can always, it can always, it, it, the truth can always be discovered if it's out there to be discovered. So there's no such thing as a hopeless case. If there's truth to this, it's true, it's true whether or not I've seen it yet. 
So it's not that it can't be seen. Um, what you, for you is one of the like really interesting things about addiction? I remember hearing this quote. Uh, Human beings can think any thought and perceive it as real. So it's the degree to which we make up our experience of the world. We create our experience of the world. And then that feels real. So, for example, if I feel I'm helpless in the face of drugs, that's the experience I will have. And I'll have the felt experience of that. And it looks so real, but it's not. It's, it's like the, the tribe member who, like the tribe who, if you draw a white circle around them, they think they can't leave it. They're capable of thinking that thought and experiencing it as real, but it's never real. <laughs> So it's that capacity to, to create a perceived world and then live in it as if it was true. And I guess that's why we need people to point out where we're doing that. And isn't it remarkable how people can change their beliefs, these lifelong held beliefs, in such a short period of time? Yes. In a way, the interesting question is how is not how we can sort of make someone see that they don't need to poison themselves it's like the magic is how they can think that they do because with um nicotine and alcohol we um there's very obvious um marketing at play and stuff but what about these other drugs like cocaine where there's no you don't see the same kind of um, adverts and stuff that promoting cocaine. So where does the brainwashing come into that? Well, I think there's very sort of generic, generic brainwashing. You know, the, what is the brainwashing? That it's very hard to quit drugs, that it takes an awful long time, uh, that you'll probably have repeated attempts and fail a few times. Like either these are intrinsic truths or they're self-fulfilling prophecies. But... You know, they played out so much in, in our society that they, it seems to me they look like the former while actually they're the latter. So other addicts as well. I mean, if, if someone's, if we know someone who's, you know, sold their soul to the devil for drugs, it looks like these things have tremendous power over people. But possibly they've just been brainwashed in the same way by someone else to believe that, that the drugs have immense power. And I suppose in films as well, maybe, that it's kind of presented as a glamorous kind of cool thing. And from the medical establishment and how they treat um, addictions, the fact that they, um, you know, keep coming up with new yes, drugs and stuff. Yes, and new gimmicks and that, that absolutely. All of which is predicated on the idea that it must be hard to get off them. Almost every approach to smoking other than ours starts off by saying it's very, very hard to stop smoking. But if you if you persevere, you'll do it. Yes, absolutely. And as Alan used to say, you know, the doctors, they have much better idea than we have about what these things do to us physically. But in my experience, they don't have much, if any, understanding of the psychology of addiction. And what do you think is um, the future for addictions? What do you, how do you think things are going to play out? 
I think they're going in the right direction. You know, when I started doing these sessions, alcohol sessions 20 something years ago, it was about 90% of the adult population who drink alcohol. Now it's more like 85, less people smoke. Uh, Kids nowadays seem to be much more aware of um, their physique and the the value of their own bodies and the fact that, um, yeah, like when I quit drinking, it was almost um, something I quit in secret. I didn't want to shout it from the rooftops. Whereas nowadays you've got like one year no beer and dry January and stuff like that. Whereas so it's much more mainstream kind of um, thing to do. So, yeah. So you're optimistic about the future. Very optimistic. Yeah, very optimistic. I, I mean, it's, it's happening, I think, as we, as we speak. And what would you say to someone who was um, thinking about um, doing a drug seminar, but was like maybe worried, not just about the prospect of never doing the drug again and what life would look like as a non-addict, but also maybe who is worried about, I don't know, their, their family finding out or their employers finding out or like who was nervous about addressing it because it kind of would make the problem real, do you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think quitting's quitting for the first is you quitting is going to make, a, you know, people less likely to find out about me having a drug problem if I quit, you know. Um, in my experience, every fear that we have regarding quitting turns out to be illusory. But in the short term, you know, things might look a little more scary before they get a whole lot less scary. I would have thought, particularly if you're facing up to having a problem. I mean, that's that's kind of ninety percent of the battle. Just saying, yes, I've got a problem. I I I, I want to lick it. Um, so that that would be a classic example of a, a an illusory fear looking very real. I think. And when people come along to the seminars for drugs, and they're not group seminars, are they, for um, the drugs? But in the alcohol seminars, do they have to like kind of stand up and say, "Oh, you know, hi, I'm an I'm an addict," or do they have to do any of that? <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. They don't have to say anything if they don't want to. Um, no, none of that business. And, and, and because a, a, a key aspect of our philosophy is that you aren't defined by the drug, that you're not, you know, you're not, it's not a case of my name is Fred and I'm a cocaine addict five years since you've used cocaine, you know, because it's not like that. You're just, you're just Fred. Um, no, there's no need to call yourself anything or describe yourself as an addict or a, or a recovering alcoholic or anything like that. Or a recovering and addict. are the seminars usually quite animated or are they usually quite... Pretty am animated. I mean, we have a good laugh, you know, and, and, you know, a bit of humour can be often a very, very helpful way of seeing the truth about something. So, no, they're a lot of fun. And what, um, what kind of feedback do you get? Very good feedback. You know, we get lovely letters and postcards from people saying... You know, it's been a year, it's been five years, sometimes it's been 10 or 15, you know. One bloke who sends me a card every single year on the anniversary of, of getting free of cocaine, uh, which is great. Yeah, we we see a lot of people who who are also, have tried other methods where, you know, they felt vulnerable or they need ongoing therapy and, and you know, they're very pleased just to be, to 
not just be sober and clean, but but without the need for any further therapy. That really is very freeing. Is there anything, Chris, that you wanted to talk about? Anything that you think would be quite an interesting point to make? Or I think the most interesting point is, you know, it's like that line, uh, human beings can think any thought and experience it as real. So I would say that all the ideas that look like they hook you oh i'm helpless i can't get off this or the drug is so precious what if all of those were examples of just your thinking looking real um well we can help you to question your thinking so that it doesn't look so real anymore so that yes more than anything there is no such thing as a hopeless case if if what we say is true it's going to always be true and so the truth is always out there to be seen. So I would say if anyone is thinking of coming along, you have, you know, you have nothing to fear, nothing to lose, everything to gain. I wouldn't swap my three decades of freedom from drugs, you know, for all the tea in China, you know. <laughs> What a fantastic episode. We appreciate all of your questions and we were thrilled to have Chris and John as our guests today alongside Chrissy Hind. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as we did, please help us to get the message out there by liking, subscribing and rating us. And don't go anywhere because we have some amazing episodes coming up soon. Keep listening and continue embracing your newfound understanding of addiction.